What's up, everybody? My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you are tuned in to Kinda Neat. Thank you for tuning in, as always. Today on the show, we have one of my best and closest friends, Adam Weiss from Ham on Everything. Adam Goes Ham. And... He's really a last-minute replacement, but we've been planning to do this podcast forever, but he stepped in and saved the day. I'm recording this on Tuesday, uh, July the 7th, and then this episode is coming out. It came out today on my birthday, July 8th, so if you are so inclined, go wish me a happy birthday. Thank you so much. I already appreciate it, because what happened is we recorded an episode a couple weeks ago that was supposed to come out today, and once the artist and the team saw it, they were like, yo... Oh, wait, this is actually way too good. We need to save this until the record is getting ready to come out. And I went, well, that's cool. And I appreciate that you guys liked it. But now I'm fucked and I'm not going to have an episode. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go on my I'm trying to get back to my 2013 shit where I'm on a 52 episode streak, 52 episodes in a row. That is the goal. So thankfully, Adam stepped in. And what a conversation it was. We just sat here for almost two hours and he really broke down his journey into self-love and self-care that he's learned by being a part of SLAW, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Because, you know, if you listen to our the podcast episode that we did now seven years ago already in 2013, the first year that Kind of Neat came out, I think he was maybe episode 15 or something. It was all about getting sober back then because he's done NA, he's done AA, he's done stints in jail. He had a very rocky youth all the way up into his late 20s on the roller coaster of addiction. He got his shit squared and realized that it still wasn't enough. And I think like his journey through Slaw has really helped him get to the root of the issues and getting to the root of the issues has really helped him do the work on himself that a lot of us talk about but don't really go through with. And you know, as a friend of his, at times it can be it can be annoying to watch almost because I project things about myself onto it or it can almost seem like corny at times, which is me projecting again. He's sitting in the room listening to me do this intro, so I'm kind of poking fun at him too. But the fact of the matter is the work he's done on himself is extremely important and I think it I think um hearing him talk about it will probably help some listeners. And that's great. So, you know, Adam and I do live lives that intertwine with each other in more ways than one beyond a personal friendship. We do work together a lot in business stuff. And we talk about that a little bit. And also just with both of us being you know, as corny as it sounds, like curators in a sense, him curating parties and me curating kind of neat, like there have definitely been ideas bounced off of each other over the years. And some of the best episodes of kind of neat have been because I was bartending one of his shows and heard an artist and I went, oh shit, that's fucking tight. Honestly, two of our top videos right off top, Ghost Man and Caliucci's, those are both people that I found out about one of them was at a ham show. One of them was at a show that Adam was DJing. So those went on to be two our, our two biggest episodes or two of our biggest episodes. So anyway, in my personal life, things... I know last week I made an, an intro that was really rough and talked about some pretty real things. But, you know, getting that off of, of my chest, I think, or, or just kind of acknowledging those things has already helped a little bit. Because you know what? The day after that episode came out, 
Mia got hired. So my wife just got a job, which is fantastic. She's already started. And yeah, it's just amazing. I'm, I'm very excited that she was able to find work in the time of a pandemic. And she's also going back to school, which I'm really proud of. She jumped straight into the workforce about three quarters of the way through college. So she, she has about a year left of college. She was actually working at Def Jam around the times that 50 Cent was breaking. And she, she was working actually underneath former guest Chris Clancy at one point. I don't know if, I'm, if I should say all of that, but I'm going to just say it anyways. And that opportunity just kind of took her out of school and then, and then life has its way of doing what life does. And she's just been in the workforce ever since. And so, you know, for her to be going back to school to get her BA and, and then, um, you know, hopefully even continuing her education after that. Really proud of her. Yeah. Happy that she got hired. That said, I talk a little bit about it with Adam on the podcast, but my personal feelings as of late, man, I've been down in the fucking dumps, you know, like I always get the doldrums around my birthday. Just getting older does not sit well with me. I'm sure that's something I'll, everyone deals with to an extent, but yeah, I just always get the birthday blues. And that coupled with the fact that it's gotten really, really hot in LA and that COVID cases are kind of spiking again. And still after five months now, there's not really a lot of straight answers or information and everyone still wants to argue about everything COVID related and what's real and what's not. It's just, it just weighs heavy on my conscience, you know? And, you know, we talk about this in the podcast too, but just also, you know, also just getting older and realizing now as a 40 year old white dude that I am like the, the dude that I always look down upon. Like I, I, I think a lot about my place in music and the art that I'm interested in and the musicians that I'm interested in. And I always want to be very conscientious of not being looked at as someone that is using or taking advantage of artists. I always want to try to make sure that my platform is a positive effect on people's careers. But at the same time, even though I'm turning 39 today, I know it's been a long time since I put music out, but I still create music too. And I still want to put music out sometimes, but at the same time, I don't want to be um, taking up space that I don't need to occupy. I don't want anyone to mistake the fact that I make rap songs. Ah, man, it's not even a mistake. It's like blatant cultural appropriation. That makes me feel really terrible, but it's something that I've been doing for 20 fucking years. And like, how, how do I cope with that is something that I've been dealing with. Just been doing a lot of soul searching about that. And in that kind of fever dream of creative disarray, I did put a song that I've been sitting on out I just quietly put it out late on a Saturday night and threw it up on YouTube and Bandcamp with no music video or nothing. And I think like if I do continue to release the stuff that I've been working on, it's probably going to be in a pretty low key manner like that. I used to really concentrate on doing music videos and trying to like make sure that all my channels were popping and I want to get all these views and stuff. And being that I haven't put anything out in fucking six years anyway, which is like wow, how did that happen so quickly? I would have to start rebuilding from scratch anyway. And I don't really enjoy doing the stuff. I don't enjoy marketing, you know? Kind of neat, for example, is something that came from what we were doing at the thing I was working on before this, which was Knocksteady. And at Knocksteady, we're doing live streams and podcasts and performances. And you just always had to be on because you're live streaming. And I, and I went, you know what? 
I don't enjoy live streaming. I don't enjoy always having to be on. I don't enjoy having to like dress for the camera. I don't enjoy having to be conscientious about what position I'm sitting in, et cetera, et cetera. So I boiled it down and I went, what do I actually enjoy about Kind of Neat? Well, I enjoy talking to artists or what do I enjoy about Knox City is what I meant. I enjoy talking to the artists and I enjoy watching them perform and then helping them get a lot of views. And so that's what I made kind of neat out of is like, I want to talk to the artists and I want to watch them perform in a very concise way. That'll get a lot of views. And so now that I'm, that I have been working on songs again and that Mark and I talk on almost a daily basis and we're always bouncing ideas off of each other. I'm going, how, how do, what did I actually enjoy about the music? And it certainly wasn't practicing for shows. It certainly wasn't playing shows even they're fine but it's not like at a point in my life I thought it was what I wanted to make my livelihood in hindsight I'm so happy that it didn't become my livelihood I'm so happy that I didn't get addicted to performing because the thing that I like is just like making the music and putting it out and I don't like making music videos I don't like marketing I don't like interviewing I don't like getting my music reviewed I don't like I, I only am making the music for the people that want to hear it I'm not making it for anybody else I'm uh, making it for myself and for the people that want to hear it so I don't want to do all the other bullshit. So that's the whole point is like I put a song out. You guys can go listen to it. I've been having a bit of a fucking identity crisis. You guys can go listen to that. And that's it. <laughs> we'll get through it, though. The depression, it always comes, but it always goes. It comes in waves. And when it hits you really hard, it also goes away just as quickly. So I'm sure I'll snap out of it soon. This conversation already helped a little bit, honestly, as Adam's sitting here looking at me like this conversation helped me snap out of the depression a little bit. Okay, without further ado... Because this is a long-ass podcast, I'm going to get into my conversation now with Adam Weiss of Ham on Everything, at Adam Goes Ham, and here it goes. So the reason that I think you've always wanted to do another episode of Kind of Neat is because since we did our first episode in 2013, you were probably in 2013, what, five years sober, four years sober? 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, four years. Four years sober. So now you are over a decade sober, right? And you have grown immensely yeah, Since I was. 2013. I was not emotionally sober in 2013. Right, I was just like sober from substance. Right, uh, but I didn't know. I didn't know that then. And I guess the reason that I've always wanted to have you back on is because we deal with so many artists and probably listeners who are dealing with addiction or coming to terms with the fact that maybe they are an addict of some sort or some degree. And I am, like you know, a dry drunk. I stopped drinking and stopped doing drugs, but did it without going through any programs. And I always look to you for sort of spiritual guidance about that sort of shit. Or or not spiritual guidance, but more like I try to learn via osmosis through you. And so even learning about slaw, sex and love addictions, anonymous, has been really eye-opening for me. And I think like our a lot of our listeners could benefit from hearing the type of stuff you learned. Because yeah, I think in 2013, you weren't going to slaw yet. And no. slaw seemed to like really change a lot of shit for yeah, you. Yeah, that's what really did it for me. Talk a little bit about your introduction to it, I guess. Well, first of all, 
where do we even start? Yeah. I, well, first with the, the, you know, 2013, I was sober from drugs and alcohol. Um, but <sighs> sex and love addiction, I think that, uh, well, when I found Slaw, I realized that was what the underlying issue had always been. I think I knew that dr- um, women was what, Feud, fueled my drug and alcohol addiction back then because mm-hmm. even when I was like doing meth I would uh, get sober and then I would always relapse because of a girl mm. and towards the end of that even I was only getting high when there was girls around even when I was like with home even after the meth and I was just like drinking and doing blow, blow every now and then if I'd be like with my boys and we're drinking and it's like 3 in the morning and the coke's all gone and they're like yo let's get more coke and there's no girl I'm like yo there's no bitches here why do you guys want to get more Coke? Like, I, I just didn't get it. And um, and then even I, I'd, when I was drunk, I'd always end up sleeping with somebody. Like, it was just really a, drinking. Yeah, drinking and drugs. And I guess towards the end, I, I was only drinking. It was a tool of connection because even with the, like, anonymous sex, if you want to call that, like meeting somebody at a bar and having sex with them, it's about uh, – trying to feel a connection. I didn't know that. I thought I was trying to get laid, you know? But I know now that I was trying to feel a connection. And you asked me, how did I get... Oh, but then here's the thing is that I relapsed during this... You know, I've been sober for 11 years, but then I relapsed on weed. Yeah, I remember that. And... You know, you and I have become very close friends since 2012. That's when we really kind of started hanging around each other. And we've since become even more than friends. Like we've become business partners in a, in a sense. And I remember that period when you got really into weed because I always make fun of you for being addicted to everything. Right. Everything you find out about, you're like, this is what I fucking love now. And I know everything about it. And this is it. And it was like tattoos for a while. And that's why you're covered with tattoos now. And it was comedy for a while. And we were going to comedy all the time and then all of a sudden it was fucking dabs and joints and weed and you were like and you're like oh it's just weed it's not a big deal and i always kind of thought like this seems like a slippery slope to me go ahead (laughs) well and it was and it wasn't something that made i didn't drink again i didn't do hard drugs again but it ate it in my sex addiction so fucking because what happened is you know i was dating a girl much younger than me you know several years ago and she was younger than me, and I ended up smoking weed with her. And then I just did it every now and then with her, and it felt like a good bonding experience with her. Mm. Um, but then once she we broke up, I started smoking a lot. First, I, th- I thought I was smoking to, like, numb the pain of the breakup. Mm-hmm. But then it became just a tool for sex acting out because now with weed, I had this whole—this sounds so fucking douchey. I had this whole new plethora of— of girls I had access to because it's like, yo, do you want to come over and blaze? Yeah. And we all know that doesn't mean, do you want to come over, you know, you want to come smoke weed and watch a movie? It always, always almost turned into sex. Right. And, um, and I, and that time period with the weed, I was acting out so much sexually that I was almost in like uh, an emotional blackout because I was like smoking weed and having sex. This and this, it was just crazy. Anyways, what led you were really heartbroken when you and that girl broke up and and it was like the end of the world for you. I thought I would not survive. And it's funny because now I have no, (laughs) no feelings at all. Right. And I always thought like this is this always it always seemed like such a troublesome relationship because of the age difference. Right. Uh, You know what I mean? Like, not that she was, she was very overage. Don't get me wrong. She wasn't a minor, but yeah, we're the age difference. 
it's not going to work out. Right. The amount of emotional attachment you had to her in general always struck me as a bit like it was like an addiction as well. Right. So, but here's how the slaw thing happened. Yeah. Is that, so when we broke up and I was still doing the weed and I was using it as like a tool um, to act out sexually. And then I met uh, the last girl, I guess that's 2015. Yeah. And it was kind of the it was kind of like you bump you jump from a relationship with a girl to another relationship with almost the same girl on paper like like sociologically speaking or emotionally speaking yeah she was probably a little um she was different she was she was like a party girl and she was more like uh she in was college not, not a party girl not a party yeah. girl in college yeah so here's what really happens is that um I'll act out sexually. Which, when I say I thought sexually, it means have sex with girls from Twitter, pretty much. Yeah. You know, we'd meet on Twitter, we, you know, slide in the DMs, they end up coming over uh, to smoke, and we end up having sex. And then, um, and for me, it's like I'm trying to get validation from it. I'm trying to feel better about myself. Right. Uh, the chase feels good, maybe. I don't know. But then there's like shame afterwards. There's shame afterwards. Yeah. And, and, and it's a loop because what I would do is after I would do that, then they would leave. I would like order, Unhealth, like mac and cheese. Like I would try to get further into the shame, mm-hmm. but it was like, oh, I feel shameful. Maybe eating mac and cheese will fill this hole, and then I just feel more shame, and then more shame, and I just have to keep, and I keep doing other shameful things to fill fill the hole. It's crazy. Right. But then when there's a girl that doesn't sleep with me immediately, um, uh, and the and the and the reward thing is like stretched out. Then I fall in love, and then all those, and I put all these magical qualities on them, and so that was this girl. Can't say her name, right? Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> so that was this girl. Yeah. And the relationship was so fucking uh, rocky. And I used to think that maybe because I was sober, I disliked um, these rocky roller coaster relationships mm-hmm. um, because it made you feel something. I don't know. But what I know now. You really thrived off having to work for the affection. like r- Which is what I'll get to. That's, yeah. exactly, oh, yeah. that's exactly what it is, is that. But I didn't realize that at first. Yeah. I guess I'll just say it. Yeah. So what it was is that, you know, meet somebody that doesn't let me sleep with them immediately. And then it's all this work to build this fake intimacy of getting to know them, but putting it on a fast track Mm -hmm. by like, you know, oversharing, sharing trauma, making them mixes like, and, and, and way too soon, you know, love bombs, love bombs. Yeah. And, and so it's like, I'm gaining this fake feeling of intimacy and then I finally get them and then I do something horrible to fuck it up so they take away the validation and then it becomes this pull and tug of me trying to get the validation and then them finally giving me a little and this you know the back and forth the back and forth and I love the back and forth because yeah you have to work to to gain the validation back it gives you a sense of purpose almost like to get validation from someone that doesn't want to give it to you is such a good validation hit but what I really realize is that it's not even about it's so whatever was going on inside of me the self-hate mm-hmm. is i was able to not pay attention to the self-hate because everything was about this this push and tug mm-hmm. pull and tug mm-hmm. so the pull and tug is just a way to avoid hating myself mm. because all because i can't focus on what's going on in here because all i'm focused on is the pull and tug with this girl mm-hmm. and um when we broke up, when she finally left me, um, which even, yeah, 
She should have done that long before this, you know. Mm-hmm. She should have, and I think she tried. Honestly, she, yeah, she tried, and, and you, but you were very persistent. Yeah. Oh, I'm manipulative. Yeah, yeah. And this sounds horrible, but like crying, you know, whatever it is, it's honestly uh, emotional abuse, really. Yeah. If I'm being really fucking honest, mm-hmm. and um, so when she, f- what finally was the nail in the coffin, coffin, as we were broke up. But we were still like hanging out and sleeping together. Mm-hmm. But even sex, I, I, I didn't, because now I think of sex as this like uh, thing that you shared or really gain connectedness and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And back then it was like a weapon, mm-hmm. another tool of manipulation. Where in my mind, and this is a, a a a game or a war that she was probably not even playing or aware of, but in my mind she was. Where we'd stay, still hang out, still have sex, but I was like, oh, this time I'm gonna make her come like three times. Sorry for being crude. I'm gonna make her come like three times, and then I'm gonna stop calling, and I'm gonna finally have the upper right. hand. You, yeah. So that was a thing during that time, and this is probably five years ago or something, right? Yeah. And you used to, you used to run text message drafts by me, Did I? and you would go like. Well, so look, here's what's happening. And so I'm going to send her this. What do you think? That's going to make her think this, right? And then, like, I'm back in the lead, huh? And I'd be like, I feel like you shouldn't text her. This is very manipulative. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. But I didn't realize. I thought that it was really this. It, it, anyway, so eventually she, like, went on a date with someone else. And I must have called her. I sound like a psychopath. I must have called her a phone. 30 fucking times under the guise that she didn't answer. And I know that she had copped some, um, uh... Pain, some kind of pain medication pills, and I mm-hmm. thought, well, maybe she like took it and got in a car wreck. But I didn't think that. It was just like my excuse to blow a. Perf- it was just crazy, right. and so like, like I'm gonna be manipulative, but my lie is going to be that I care so much about you that I really panicked. Yeah, yeah. And then so I think that time when I called her that many times, she was like, okay, she was done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was done this time, mm-hmm. and um. I took it. I took the breakup really hard. Uh, I was way more sad this time. This is probably the most heartbreaking. And this is the thing: is we were together for like not even six months, so the reaction uh, wasn't right sized. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, I was like so broken, and 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 um, I was watching the Netflix series Love. Mm-hmm. You've seen it. And at the and I was relating so much to the lead character, the female. Right. And then the last, um, and it's funny because I've been at this point, I've been in the rooms of AA and NA and all that for like seven years. And for some reason, slaw never crossed my mind. At the last episode of the first season, she goes to a slaw meeting. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. And I started doing mad research about sex and love addiction. I tried to listen to every fucking podcast I can about it. I just really did a lot of research about it. And you know, that's not true because when I was like 15 and and before I got sober for good, because I, I was in and out of NA even as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, maybe I don't need, because like even back then I kept using whenever there was like w- girls around. Mm-hmm. And I was like, maybe I need, instead of NA, I need CODA, Codependency Anonymous. Because mm-hmm. I'm codependent on, on these relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, so I guess I've known that there was like an issue of revolving around women. And then when I saw that series, I did all this research, and then I got this book, Facing Love Addiction, and it talked about love avoidance and love addicts, and uh, it just explained me to a T, and uh, it was really fucking eye-opening. Then, mm-hmm. I, then I started going to slaw meetings, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meetings, and uh, my life has changed. And I, I want to say, for me, 
all of the novels that I'd read about, like Sex Addicts Anonymous, it never included the L part. And so it was always really like hyper focused on like sex addiction. It would be like these people who just masturbate constantly and who are like fucking people in alleyways and like just doing the most wild, decrepit sexual shit. But I think like what I learned about Sex and Love's Addicts Anonymous from from by osmosis from you is that really it concentrates a lot more on the love part and like the sex part is really the physical action of acting out about like your addiction to wanting to be loved. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's the same thing. And there is sex addicts anonymous and yeah. there's sexual compulsive anonymous. Oh yeah. But yeah. yeah, sex and love addicts anonymous. But that's the thing is I thought the same thing is is you think of like, you know, perverts and yeah. and fucking like I'm not a, I'm not out here flashing people and it's masturbating like, at the exactly, library. Yeah, but like like you said, it it turns out that um yeah, sex is just a symptom of trying to feel validation, mm-hmm. trying to get validated. Yeah, that was what I learned going to a therapist in my early 20s was that, yeah, being promiscuous was merely seeking validation that I didn't get from my father, well, which is what our podcast is really, what my podcast is really about. <laughs> well, it's funny, well, because my stuff's about my father and my mother, Yeah, but it, even, but you know, with my father, like, I didn't have a good relationship with him. Like we didn't, right. he wasn't, um, he was pretty checked out emotionally. Right. And so we didn't like, you know, play catch or any of the kind of like, you know, father son shit. You're telling me you're not good at throwing. Yeah. No. <laughs> and so very early on, a lot of my sex and love addiction is about getting acceptance for men. Right. It's not even about women. Um, it's about like, I don't feel like I fit in with men because I'm not in a sports, because I'm not a manly man. I'm not in a fucking engines. You know what I mean? So, and so if you can show that you are you have sexual prowess, then it's something that, that other right. men will respect or value. And, and, and it worked because like every girl I've dated, it's people are like, Whoa, how you know, like how'd you get hurt? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it was a way of me to uh to relate to men and to feel accepted by men because that's what we really want is acceptance and connection, you know, with other humans. And I want to be accepted by men which is, is what I've realized. Which is like deeply rooted in patriarchy and misogyny, yeah. uh, which is uh, that like, I, yeah, I don't know. There's so many layers to that. Yeah. Right? And, you yeah. Ha- and you've been trying to work through all of this for the last like five years, basically. Like four years. Four years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, and then it's, and so that's my father part of it. And my yeah. mother part of it is I grew up with a mom who was an alcoholic. Uh, so my dad's checked out emotionally. My mom's pretty checked out physically because she's like, during certain times of her of her drinking, she'd be like, by the time I get home from school, she's like passed out on the couch mm. drunk. But my mom was also very loving. Mm-hmm. And so as a child, I didn't know if I'm going to get the connection or am I not going to get the connection? Mm-hmm. Because when she wasn't drunk, she was really a great mom, very loving. Like overcompensating. Helped me with almost. my homework, yeah. m- you know, had snacks for me, all like the suburban, you know, mother shit. Mm-hmm. Or she'd be really drunk and be like a different person. When I was a kid, I would even think her face looked different when she was drunk. Mm. And so. Which really ties into that push and pull of like. Exactly. Yeah. So with women, um, you know, it's funny because I could be a love addict or a love avoidant. And so when when if if a girl sleeps with me immediately, which <laughs> which a lot of them do, no. but if a girl will sleep with me immediately, um, then my love avoidant would turn on. Right. But really, it's self hate because it's like you fucking sleep with me immediately. I'm a piece of shit, and 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 then I'm disgusted. But also, you and I'm sure addicts in general attract people that reflect themselves in a sense, right? So it's right. not it's not like I don't think it's just addict. I think that's trauma. Yeah, th- yeah, totally. 
And you'll attract people with a similar trauma, which are people I'm love avoiding to. And then when I attract people that have the opposite trauma of me, when they're avoidant, that's when I become the love addict. Mm. And then what happens with the with the pull and tug? Because once they're gonna give me that love finally, uh, that connection. I'm so scared the connection is not going to be there because as a child, I didn't know when I came home, was I going to have the connection with my mom or was I not going to? Mm-hmm. And so I was just in this constant loop of scared that I'm going to lose the connection. And so we self-prophesize this stuff and we make us lose the connection because what we're doing in these relationships is we're we're trying to redo the relationship we have with our primary care, caregiver. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to prove to my inner child this time I can get it right. Mm-hmm. This time I can get the connection. Damn. Yeah. And is that stuff that you learned mostly via slaw or is that also in combination with your therapist? Or slaw what? and therapy. Yeah, right. And so after you start slaw, I noticed a big personal change in you. You know, you really buckled down on your sobriety again. The weed was gone. Stop sleeping around. Pretty soon thereafter. Yeah. Like damn near born again virgin for a while. Yeah. Well, I tried... Uh, when I was first going to slaw meetings, because I thought I was in there for love addiction because yeah. of the breakup was so bad. And I was like, maybe I could still, you know, get some hits from sex. Yeah. And I tried to have sex with inappropriate partners during mm-hmm. the beginning. And, it no, you know, they have a thing in AA where they say eventually the drink stops working. The sex stopped working. Mm-hmm. It didn't make me feel good. It didn't make me feel validated. I felt gross. I felt inappropriate. And, um, and I realized this isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. The medicine stopped working. Mm-hmm. So what do you do after that? I really buckled down on slaw. And, and what well, the reason why slaw was able, I think because slaw deals with childhood trauma, really it deals with your childhood issues. Mm-hmm. I think that in AA, you know, I did the stuff. It, AA, it's easy. You just got to not pick up a drink. Mm-hmm. And I know for people listening that might be struggling with drinking or, or drugging, that sounds easy. But honestly, just... What I would do early in AA is don't pick up a drink no matter what. Mm-hmm. Just that. Um, Did you go through all the steps? Yes. Yeah. Completed all 12. Yeah, but it didn't hit me. Yeah. I didn't because the big part is you have a relationship with a power uh, greater than yourself. Yeah. Your higher power. Right. God, if you will. Right. I didn't get it in AA. I didn't really need it because all I had to do was just not pick up a drink. Mm-hmm. But slaw, that stuff is so in my fabric of who I am. It's childhood trauma that I really, really needed to turn over to a higher power. And so from a first time, my, so that's why it's so much more powerful this time because I really have a relationship with a higher power. Mm-hmm. And that statement can instantly turn a lot of people off. You know what I mean? Particularly like people that, like myself, they consider themselves atheists. So explain in your own words what a higher power can mean because it doesn't necessarily mean like this – Western culture idea of God, right? Right. No, it doesn't have to be. And that's the thing is that um, almost everybody in 12-step programs everywhere because all the third step is always turn my will and will and life over to a power greater than myself. Mm-hmm. And the word God is used. Mm-hmm. And almost everyone that is an addict, especially we're atheists or agnostic or if we had bad relationship with God as children, you know, our parents' God. Like, Fuck but that. it doesn't have to be that kind of God. Mm-hmm. It just has to be a power that's greater greater than you, that you could turn your will over. That You just have to accept. So like The Rock. Will, any, any, anything. No, I'm just kidding. That well, honestly, it. anything. It just, the thing is that you just have to know that you aren't in control. 
Yeah. And you just have to be able to to say, hey, my will didn't work because when I'm in my will, I'm drinking, I'm using drugs, I'm popping Xanax, I'm having sex with inappropriate girls, I'm in these fucked up relationships. My will doesn't work. So it's time to turn over to power greater than yourself. And I don't, and so me, I don't believe in like a God with a beard and a fucking robe. I don't know what it is, the universe, it's whatever, but I'll call it God because mm. fuck it. It's just like a, it's easier to, it's a placeholder. Yeah. But you know, here's something I heard that I really like mm. is that, you know, like you said, in Western religions, you could think of God, you think of yourself as this little circle. And then there's a bigger circle on top of you and that bigger circle above you, that's God. And it's this thing that's, you know, a higher article. How do you say it? Hierarchical. Yeah. yeah. Hierarchical, whatever. This thing above you that you pray to that's up there and it's it's separate from you. Mm -hmm. That's one way to look at it. Mm -hmm. But the way I like to look at it is you have the big circle and you have the small circle, which is you inside of the big circle. Mm. And during these moments of heightened spiritual awareness, the, the lines that make my circle they kind of get erased, they get blurred. And then I don't know where, where my circle begins and this other circle starts. And, and so it's like, I have something I feel a part of, you know, I just read, um, this quote by Rainer Marie Reich, you know, the poet where he's talking about, um, God and he goes, you know, uh, or the sacred, whatever you want to call it, the universe. Mm -hmm. But he says, uh, in reference to the sacred or to God, uh, are you a web or are you a tree or, or are you a forest and, 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 and am I running through this forest or am I a forest and you're a herd of luminous deers and you're running through me. Hmm. And so that's how I kind of think of it where it's like, I feel part of this thing. And to me, I feel it most in nature. Mm-hmm. So to me, it is like the- Which is really new for you. You're just discovering the power of nature lately. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know I liked outdoors. Right. Which is funny because I've been trying to say like, yo, come camping with us for the last fucking four years. And you're like, no, I don't fuck with that shit. And now you're like, I, I got my, I've got my uh, hammock out in Sedona over a river. Like, yeah, yeah. I think that Jews, we don't like grow up going camping. <laughs> it's not like a very Jewish thing. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I found out that I liked, you know, it's crazy that it's still going to slaw. I didn't know what I liked at all because right. my whole personality was built around, um, getting my dr- main drug, which was either sex to make me feel validated or relationship to make me feel loved. I mean, e- even your career in a sense is based Everything. on validation. I mean, you Everything. became the guy who threw the party. So everybody would come up afterwards. Hey, fucking Adam, man. Great party. Like get recognized on the street. Like that's definitely a hit uh, of, of oxytocin for yeah. you, you know? Everything. Yeah. So I didn't know what I liked. Yeah. And so when I started going to slaw and I started uh, getting a relationship with myself, yeah. I don't know who myself was. I didn't know what I liked. Yeah. Which brings me to an interesting thing I've noticed about you is how strong of boundaries you started setting for yourself which before you had no boundaries no i didn't know what a boundary was yeah it was like you were the type of guy who'd probably send an email at uh midnight on a sunday because you don't give a fuck like you just want to like everything now 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 and and um and so even on that base level of like your relationship with work and career like you've set boundaries there you've set boundaries with your relationships you've set boundaries with your friendships like just talk about learning about boundaries the work boundary was huge for me because um you know i had to get self love had to get self care cuz i didn't have that at all and um my work self 
is not my authentic self. It's just, it's part of me, but my authentic self is who I am to myself or when I'm alone. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, but I was getting so many hits of validation from the work self that um, I was always on the clock. I was always working. You know, the last, the girl that I dated, I can't say her name because you don't want me to say names, but the girl I dated that got me introduced to, I ended up finding Slaw, you know, and she would come over and she'd get, you know, drive from Orange County and she'd be mad because I'm like, on my phone, doing emails, like no matter, it's like, I couldn't even put the phone away to like be with her, even though I was obsessed with her Mm -hmm. because like work, 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 hits, hits, hits. Mm -hmm. I wake up and I got to fucking get on it because I was, wanted to control every, you know, wanted to control everything. I didn't know how to let go. Uh, so everything was control, control, control. So with work, it was super important because I had to get a relationship with myself that wasn't my work self. And so those boundaries, what they looked like for me was emails Monday through Friday only during fucking nine to five work hours on the weekend. Don't even fucking open my email. Just do things for myself and just, uh, yeah. That was really important because I, I had to find what I liked and find and find a version of myself that wasn't based off getting validation from other people. Which was really um, eye-opening for me. You know, you and I have both been independent workers and independent contractors the entire time that I that we've known each other. When, when we met in 2012, or I mean, we met in 2010, but when we really became friends, you were working for yourself, I was working for myself, and... We weren't going to offices. We didn't have office hours. We didn't have standard times. And so when that happens, your your initial instinct when you're trying to hustle is to be working literally 24-7 because, like, you've got to chase gotta the paper. Got to grind. Got to chase grind. the paper. And then it wasn't until you really told me, like, yeah, I don't send emails on weekends anymore where I was like, oh, nobody's going to, like, miss me not sending emails on a weekend. Like, no one's going to look down on me for, like – not hitting them back on a fucking Sunday. You know what I mean? Like I have worked hard enough and I deserve to like have a weekend like everybody else and just be normal. Because the other thing about when you work independently, it's because since you're only working in short spurts to send emails or to respond or take calls or whatever, you do have a lot of downtime where no one's watching you. So it can feel like life is a weekend. Right. You know what I mean? But at the same time, yeah, like working around the clock is very it's just bad for you yeah and that was the most important thing like you said is that no one's gonna like miss me if i don't reply to email on the weekend that's what i have to say is like yo the world's gonna keep fucking spinning whether or not i reply to an email immediately or not right or sometimes with a text even i'll wait to reply just to set a boundary right because it's like yo i don't need like to immediately reply to some shit Mm. i don't need to fucking do that and the world will keep spinning everything's gonna be fine and that's why like my morning routine is so important to me because I used to just wake up in a state of anxiety where it's like, time to control everything. Uh, gotta check the emails. Gotta be on social media. Gotta do this. Gotta do this. Gotta do this. And then I walk around my fucking my fucking life with, and I didn't even know that it was anxiety. You know, it's like um, water, the ocean, right? The waves uh, when are like the waves could be so powerful at high tide or whatever where it's crashing against the the shore and crashing against the stones and the rocks i wake up and like that's what i am like i'm just like uh the waves are insane but even when the waves are crazy in the ocean if you were to go down deep 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 into the ocean 
it's really calm down there. It's really slow down there, you right? You really learned all the analogies, bro. <laughs> You've learned all the analogies. But go. right? Yeah, yeah. So what I need to do is I need to get to the center of myself where it's calm. You got to dive slow. down deeper. And so to do that, I need to do slow things in the morning. Yeah. I need to bring the pause and move slow mm-hmm. so I don't just wake up in that fucking crazy thrashing yeah. waves. Well, and that's what's so interesting, I guess, in having you as a friend and watching you from afar me not being an addict on the level that you are, it's interesting for me to have to watch you learn these things because the morning routine is something that has been inherently important to me for so long. And I never knew why it's just like, Oh, I need to wake up and do the same fucking thing every morning or else I have a terrible day, but I never had to like conscientiously think about it or apply it. I just like inherently knew it. And you really just had to like learn that about yourself because I think the addict in you doesn't let you slow down. No. Ever. No. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important. And that pause. And I learned that like for me, higher power or God mm-hmm. exists in the pause. Mm-hmm. And so I need to invite the pause in because I don't naturally go to pause. Mm-hmm. And so the morning, like, you know, I wake up, I make the bed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is something I didn't do all of my 20s and early 30s. Mm-hmm. Make the bed, hit my knees. And not that I have like the kind of God you need to pray to, but prayer is powerful. And then to me, it's just like, a meditation throwing intention mm. into the universe mm-hmm. and i think intention speaking it writing it out something happens mm-hmm. can't explain it mm-hmm. and then uh i now i meditate and that's something that's new because I used to think I was too anxious to meditate yeah that's one thing that we've disagreed on cuz we 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 tried to go to that uh right that tank thing the uh what deprivation the, yeah, the, tank. the sensory deprivation tank and I was like, I, kn- I already knew in advance. I'm like, Adam's going to love this and I'm going to hate this. But and, I didn't and I, really and I, meditate. I prophesized. I mean, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because right. we, we, we spent money for an hour. I was only able to stay in there for like 35 minutes before I was like driving myself crazy because I kept getting frustrated because I was bumping into the wall. And I sat in there looking all grumpy afterwards where staff members were coming up to me like, hey, are you okay? I know like uh, you got out of there pretty quick. A lot of people, you know, they have like really uh, moving experiences. I said, oh no, I just kept moving into the wall. And and uh, and you came out like, man, that was great. I can't wait to do it again. That's the thing, though. Is I, but I didn't, like, get into a meditative state. I just thought that it was cool to feel weightless yeah. and, like, in the dark. But, I mean, I had anxiety the whole time because uh. my problem with <laughs> meditating – they would say, you know, uh, count on count, you know, count your breath out, and I'm like, and so in my mind, like, what well, do I count the breath out? Do I count the breath in? When yeah. do I count? Uh, uh, you know, and and so like that's so Larry David. <laughs> so everything is like, and and so I never, and so beginning my morning routine because I just started meditating pretty recently. So beginning the morning routine, I would do things that felt meditate. You know, there's a poem that says. Uh, even peeling a potato is a form of prayer. Mm. And so I would do these slow meditative, you know, watering my flowers, doing things that felt meditative, but I wasn't actually meditating until recently. But now what I understand of meditation, at least of mindful meditation, is that it's not about uh, reaching this level of Zen. It's not about clearing out your thoughts because that's what gives me anxiety mm-hmm. because I can't do it right. right. And when I can't do something, I don't want to, I give up. because. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you hate yourself a little bit for not being able to do it. Exactly. Uh, that's how I am. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, but what I've learned now about at least mindful meditation is it's not about uh, uh, having, you know, my thoughts cleared out. No, it's about having some quiet time to myself where I let the thoughts come up and when a thought comes up, I say to myself with a smile, I go, thinking. Mm. 
and 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 I say with a smile because I'm trying to be gentle and and nice to myself, and I'm just pointing out your thinking. So, mm-hmm. like just acknowledging let, the let, thought. Let the thought go out, and another mm-hmm. one comes up thinking mm. and it's fine though i'm supposed to be, be doing this but what i'm actually doing is i'm conditioning my mind so that during the day when i'm not in meditation and something a feeling comes up a thought comes up i don't just react because mm-hmm. my first reaction to everything is not good mm-hmm. and yeah, so this is teaching me how to like take a beat between the like feeling of discomfort of loneliness of resentment and before i just grab for something to fill the space i now it's i'm not now i'm trying to learn how to sit in that space because in that space is something that you don't want to feel and that's why when i feel lonely discomfort or resentment i grab for something Mm -hmm. i don't want to be in the space um, but I read another quote that said the most heartbreaking thing we can do to ourselves or cheat, is cheat ourselves at the present moment. Mm-hmm. And to me, I thought that just meant positive present moments. But even if you cheat yourself of feeling lonely or of feeling resentment, of feeling discomfort, even if you cheat yourself of that, and because uh, you know I feel lonely, first thing I want to do is grab my phone and go on Instagram, you know. Mm-hmm. And but then I'm but then I'm not allowing myself to be present in the moment. And if I'm always grabbing for things and I'm not pausing in that in that space between feeling and reacting, if I don't pause in that middle, I'm just going to speed through my whole fucking life. Mm-hmm. I want to live my life. How long is it after you start going to slaw after the the brief interlude of acting out while you're in slaw until you discover that you're really going to need to get into self-care and then like becoming a pseudo Instagram fucking video blogger about your self-care routines? Yeah. So um, I'm slow with everything, man. So even with slaw, at first I would go and I would just listen. I didn't participate. Mm-hmm. I was scared to share it. I didn't want to sound dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't work the steps for like a year or so. But I just listened. And I kept hearing things about self-dates. Mm-hmm. I heard things about self-love. And I realized, okay, uh, I'm going to try this stuff. So I would just try it. And the self-date thing seems so scary to me because uh, – I can do anything by myself. I, I even back then, and it's so funny because I'm. It's like hard to imagine this version of me. I couldn't imagine going to eat lunch by myself. I can imagine. Yeah, you were definitely some. I see. I this is something where we've always been opposite. Is like I love doing things alone because I. I just need a break from people sometimes. And I don't ever think of it as self-care. I guess like going to a movie by myself or going to a restaurant by myself for me is like my form of meditation, right? Yeah. And you are somebody who's always like, what the fuck, man? You don't want to go eat with me? And I'm like, nah, why don't just go get a sandwich? What's the, what's the big deal? I couldn't imagine going to a movie, my, anything by myself. I love it. You know what I used to do? If there was a concert I wanted to go to, I would buy two tickets. Yeah. And I would hope to find a girl to go with. It didn't even have to be a girl that I knew well. Right, of course. You know, just... So you weren't there alone. And if And if I couldn't find someone to go with... I would fucking not go and waste those two tickets. That's how codependent I was on having other people's company. And so self-dates, I had to take really slow. And what it's about, by the way, is self-hate, is that I I so much internally thought that I wasn't worthy of having an experience that someone else had to be there to validate the experience as being worthy. Because me alone, I don't deserve it. Mm. 
and and it's fucked up because I didn't feel that consciously, mm-hmm. but from doing this work, I realized, oh, I just didn't. I needed someone else to validate the experience for me because I thought I wasn't enough. Not enoughness, huge issue for me. And so, the self date it started very gradually. Where first I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna try self dates on Sundays, and I'm just gonna take the train to Hollywood, and I'm gonna go get lunch at Veggie Grill. Then I'm going to go see a movie next door at the Arclight, whatever has a high Rotten Tomato score. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to go shop for records at Amoeba. Because you're also a, re- a review <laughs> addict. You love Yelp and Rotten yeah. like, <laughs> But during this that period yeah. of when I, I saw so many great films I probably wouldn't have watched. Right. Because I was like, well, what's playing right now oh, has a highest score. Right. I'll go see it. Okay, yeah. Without watching the trailer. But everything was right close to each other. So it's like next to the Veggie Grill is the Arclight Theater. Next to the Arclight Theater is Amoeba records and mm. so it was just like so i started doing that i did that for maybe two or three months every sunday and uh, i got really comfortable with spending time with myself and actually what also happened by the way is that when me and that last girl broke up i became suicidal mm. and or not suicidal but a lot of suicide ideation mm-hmm. because i was it was so bad and that negative uh self-talk tape was so fucking loud. I felt like I was doing a lot of things during the day to quiet the tape, but at night it catch up to me and mm. I couldn't quiet it. And I remember laying in bed and the self hate, the I'm not good enough. I'm going to be alone forever. As soon as somebody gets to know me, as soon as a woman gets to know me, she sees that I'm unlovable. And now I'm unlovable. I'm not enough. That tape, so fucking loud. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm not going to drink again. I'm not going to use drugs. I'm not going to smoke weed. What else could I do to make my brain stop, to make yeah. my brain slow down? Mm-hmm. Suicide's kind of the only thing. And I kept thinking about this Connor Oberst lyric where he says, You'll settle for anything that'll make your brain slow down and slow down or stop. Mm. And that's what it was about the drinking and drugs and the sex and everything, anything to fucking get out of my my brain. So when I started doing these self-dates, the little real simple ones of movies, lunch, looking at records, the voice, the tape, the negative self-talk tape got quieter and quieter and quieter. Then it became summer and I, and I wanted to up my self-date even more. And I, and I, and I thought, well, I'm going to, I got really into podcasts and reading again. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I'm going to take the train from downtown to Santa Monica. Nice 45 minute train ride. I could catch up on a podcast. I could read a little bit. And then when I got there, I would take an Uber to this place called Flake in Venice. That is a great breakfast burrito. I'd get a breakfast burrito and then I would uh, walk to the boardwalk and I would walk all the way back to Santa Monica listening to like a record that I knew is something that I like should have been into that I never gave it like cat power mm-hmm. sun kill moon right and I was like I'm gonna tr- give this album a try like when I was t- I remember that era because I'm like oh you never heard my broken social scene yeah. or a broken social scene I mean and uh yeah just shit like that like it was like all these hipster records that you were catching up on right. where, where like I think everybody probably assumed you already knew right. them right and you probably knew had a passing knowledge enough to like Use them in conversation, yeah, I but, knew had, they existed. but had never really listened to right. them. Right. So I, so, the, so, and then I realized I loved walking um, from Venice to uh, the train station. And this is when the Instagram thing started too, because I just got my camera phone fixed. And I was thinking about other people in like the this scene or whatever that do vlogs mm-hmm. and that I don't want to say names, but vlogs where, uh, you know, people that are older, closer to my age, who are seen as um, 
influential in the scene that younger kids are going to look up to, mm-hmm. where the where the vlog more so celebrates uh, getting fucked up and having this crazy lifestyle, like debauchery. Yeah, yeah. And I and I was doing this like really wholesome, like not even wholesome, just like plain human being shit. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing the phone as like a joke vlog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought like, what if I was like doing a vlog where I'm just like doing normal, you know, shit and mm-hmm. just like taking care of myself, self care. Mm-hmm. And then it resonated with people, so I like now I take it seriously. But would you say that it's another addiction? I don't know. I mean, because <laughs> sometimes the, those those dots on the top of your story right. get very very short. There's a lot of them up there. It just holds me accountable. Yeah. And then if it helps other people, I just want to like yeah. help. Yeah. And so I mean, there there can can there be positive addictions as well? Like yeah, th- things that are good to be addicted to. Yeah, so I think, well, right now, like, uh, the phone stuff, I'm, like, I'm doing things a lot different with the phone, where now I'm, like, have to deinstall the the social media apps for my phone, then I reinstall them for 15-minute increments four times a day. And I'm setting, wow. Beca- because, you know, I feel discomfort, I reach for the thing, and then yeah. I'm not present, and I could spend hours just scrolling back and forth between Instagram and Twitter, and then I'm not present and I wasted time in my day. But I think instead you could be addicted to, you can grab for something that's more in line with the values you want to have. So instead I could read a book. Mm-hmm. I could go on a walk. Mm-hmm. I could go into nature. I could watch an interesting film, listen to an interesting podcast. And those more are in line with the values of what I want to be seen as and how I want to move through this world. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather do that. Mm-hmm. So that, like I said, it is a healthy addiction. Right, right. If it's more in line with the values of how you want to move through this world. Mm-hmm. So the walks. Yeah. So I start doing the walk from Venice to Santa Monica. I found out I really enjoy it. I like when the sun starts setting over the ocean. I didn't even know I liked it. If you like, I used to invite you to the beach all the no time. Way, and there's you're no like, way I'd want to go. You're like, I no, I don't fuck with the beach. I didn't see the point. Yeah. Sand? Right. <laughs> that was the thing. Like that. That's what uh, I'll tell you, uh, honestly, on some friend shit, is like watching you discover shit and finally it breaking through to you there's a part of me like that gets a little mad where i'm like man motherfucker i used to ask you to come do this shit with me and you were like no that's whack and i'm like now you like it but now it's like a it's like a self-date thing and i'm yeah. like oh so now he doesn't want to do it with somebody else i, do it with you. No, I know we, i know. We went to the beach yeah uh <laughs> we did um so i started doing that and then i i i thought uh why well, enjoy walking why don't I go to some of these gardens, like Descano Gardens, and yeah. try to like? I like the outside thing. Yeah. And then I started doing that, and then I thought, why don't I try to go on a hike? I don't know. So like slowly, I just started um, just seeing what I liked, mm-hmm. and then a big part of this recovery for me is leaning into discomfort. And so even with like liking jazz and wanting to see jazz live, uh, for instance, in New York. You know, uh, if I, I'll get a ticket, I'll go by my. If I'm by myself and I want to go to the Village Vanguard to see a jazz show, I'll show up an hour early so I can be first in line, so I get a seat in the very front because I learned that I like to sit in the front because part of the enjoyment of watching jazz live is watching their fingers while they play. Mm-hmm. And before, there's no way I would go somewhere alone. And if I did, I would show up like right when it starts so I don't have to have any awkwardness of just standing around. But now it's like I still feel awkward doing that shit. But the reward, what I'm telling my brain is like, yo, you're allowing yourself to feel discomfort and uncomfortable 
because the because re- what you're going to get in return is something that you enjoy and you're worth it. Mm-hmm. And and so even like going alone to some to some like I just went to Sedona, you know, I do so much stuff alone now. So I went to Sedona by myself. I'm giving a message to my brain that like you don't need someone else to validate this experience for you. You're worthy of just experiencing this yourself. And honestly, the more I do these things for myself, uh, our actions really dictate our thoughts. They really do. You can really think yourself, act yourself into right thinking. And it really has worked. And even just like doing things, simple things, like I, before I wouldn't even want to cook dinner for myself or I'd do something really simple. Mm-hmm. But if there was a girl coming over, I'd make fresh fucking pasta and put on a jazz record and this and this. But why not do that for myself? Mm-hmm. And even the way I keep my apartment clean now, if a girl was coming over, I would clean the fuck out of my apartment and make it look really fucking nice. But if I would do that for some random fucking chick, yeah, why right. the fuck wouldn't I do that for myself? Right. The longest relationship of my life is going to be the one with me. Mm-hmm. So it's time to start treating it like that how long after you start going to slaw is it that you realize in order to really deal with these issues you need to be celibate and you need to set these like dating boundaries because dating boundaries is something really interesting that i've learned from you i would have never thought to have rules about engagement with women that you're interested with um that came yeah i didn't come until like two or three years in when i met the last girl i dated um, but I knew about, da- we call it dating plans mm-hmm. because what happens is that, um, no matter how much recovery I have, I'm still an addict. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so good. Most of us we're so good at justifying red flags or ignoring, straight up ignoring red flags. And so a dating plan allows me to not, um, it allows me space to look for red flags, to look for yellow flags, to look for green flags, green flags being ideal qualities. Mm -hmm. And so, and also like, so the way the dating plan works, it's like, you know, the first three, three dates are, you know, an hour long only, and you only text to, uh, get specifics. You don't like have these long tech conversations and, you know, you don't try to do all the usual shit. And what happens a lot also is that, um, you'll see the other person's true intentions. Cause a lot of times if it's not like exciting for them, uh, then they might j- drop out too. You know, like in books and here's another, uh, saying for you, mm-hmm. like in books and movies, love strikes like lightning mm-hmm. in real life. Lightning could hurt or kill you. I mean, I remember, you know, not even I remember, like, I just know that my whole thing when I was in the dating scene, if I met someone new, it was like, ooh, I need to be texting right at the right moment because if I'm trying to text her and I'm interested in her, then there are definitely other men that are going to swoop in and be a better fit for her. And if I don't text at the right time and they're texting at that time, then like, that's it. I'm going to miss my chance. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, you would definitely get into this thing where you're trying to hold their attention all day and you're just conversing all day. And I'm sure part of them feels that same way. Right. You know, and you get into these, yeah, there are just no boundaries. You're just texting all fucking day and night until you can meet up with them again. Yeah, it's all boundaries. I mean, yeah. even something else we say in Slaw is that uh, even going on a date, which is, this is such a mind-blowing revelation to me. Going on a date, I'm going on a date to see if I like them. Mm-hmm. I never did that. I went on a date to make them like me. Yeah. I never went on a date with with 
it being an investigation for me to see if I like them. Right, because it was already a given. Like, I'm asking them out because I already know. I've already painted this person's personality yeah. in my head. Like, I already like them. I know them. I've idealized them. Like, they're the they're the right one. And and that's and and with and with doing that. And now, so with going on a date with seeing if I like them. Um, I'm being present, but also I'm not objectifying them because I, I objectified women, not just in sex, because either I objectified them, the ones I act out with sexually, or even the ones I had romantic obsession with. That's still a way of obje- objectifying them right. because I'm putting magical qualities on them. I'm making them an object. I'm not getting to fucking really know them. Right, right. And I don't want to objectify women right. anymore. You've done a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. What does love look like now? Uh, it's so, it's so diff, you know, cause uh, something they say, I don't know. Cause I'm not in love right now, but I know that, um, what a lot of people say in recovery and slaw is that when it's not something, when it feels like love at first sight, you probably need to, to need to go the other way. Yeah. Cause a lot of, usually it's just like traumas reacting mm-hmm. with each other, you know? And so a lot of times it's like someone where you don't feel that immediately. I don't know, because I read that the way to find the best partner for yourself is when you're neither when you're neither um, seeking nor avoiding. Mm-hmm. You're just living to, you know, living to your to your true to your true uh Existence. Live into your true existence and just noticing who you meet. Yeah, right. And uh, you want to know one of the quotes that you told me that always stuck with me was, I would be hard pressed to think that any friend of mine has not done this, where you see a beautiful woman that you're attracted to walk behind you and in your head you go, oh, damn. Like, wow, look at that. And one of the quotes that you heard was, uh, you know, when I see someone like that that makes me react that way, I, you know, you go, God give me the strength to find in myself what I'm looking for in that person that just walked by. Yeah. Cause you know what I'm saying? yeah. Cause, cause what, cause when I see someone like that and I'm like, Oh shit, you know, what's really happening is I'm thinking like, you're going to make me feel better about myself. Right. You're going to save me. You're going to make me feel worthy. You're going to make me feel, lo- you know, all that right. shit. But like, that's just a human fucking being. Yeah. And I got, and, and I, and, 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 and it's objectifying like a motherfucker. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's like, turn it back, back, back to me and back to God or higher power, the universe, because, uh, that's how I'm going to feel lovable. That's how I'm going to feel self-esteem. That's how I'm going to feel wor- worthy. You can't, you can't uh, have, you can't put that pressure on another – you can't give someone else that kind of power mm-hmm. that they're going to give you. It's called self-esteem, not girlfriend esteem or work esteem. Damn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> how has it affected your work being – It's so much better. Like not like not occupying you know 85% of your brain space with trying to chase women. How has that affected the rest of your life, particularly in work? I mean I don't – I mean, work's been great. I mean, obviously, right now nothing's happening because yeah, of co- quarantine. Right. But um, you know what? What used to happen before all of this is the night of a day of an event. My day was ruined because so much anxiety about things going right. I had to be in control. I had to this and this. And now, the last few years, when I have a party, I don't give a shit. It's like 
it, things are going to happen. Like I just do what I need to, the steps I need to do, the email blasts I need to send. I've curated and booked it the way that I think people are going to enjoy it. I know that I'm good at that. And then that's it. Let go. And let the results are going to be the results no matter if I'm trying to control it or not. And it's so nice to not have to fucking stress about it all day and to just show up and be ready to accept the results. It's been amazing. I'm probably going to live longer now because of this. True. By the way, for people that don't know, eh, they know if they're listening, but I throw events. Yeah. I mean, you can go back and listen to right. our to our podcast from 2013 to hear about him throwing events. But also, your career has evolved in a sense as well where I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't have my fucking um, hands in your pocketbook, obviously, but I don't think that parties have been your main source of income no. the last couple years because you and I have started working together on various projects. So and I you know, know, you, and you know you the money. Yeah, and <laughs> you have other stuff going on as well. Yeah, I mean, I would love to like kind of talk about 2019 and what we did together because I am proud of it and I don't think I ever get to talk about it, but like we really helped Skull Candy curate what I thought was a pretty fucking cool super dope yeah a cool list of artists that they you know would work with every month we managed to like really convince everybody in the corporate world to keep it very diverse I mean I have to thank you for bringing me into it I'll yeah, thank course. you honestly yeah yeah and it was so fun because yeah we gotta like you know convince them which is fun but also what was fun for me curating is I knew that I wasn't curating it under the ham eye yeah. I was curating it under your eye and right. so I was like what would not yours and Skull Candy yeah. like what would Lee like and what would Skull Candy what would make sense for Skull that was fun man right because because essentially they had me hosting and acting as the face of this music program, but also kind of overall consulting on their overall image within music. And so I was like, yo, I have this perfect guy to come in to book the artist who has this amount of credibility in the industry where like if he sends an email and says, I'm Adam from Ham, people go, oh, yeah. I've been to his parties. I love that guy. Like, yes, I'll do this. And when you have that sort of credibility where people, you know, people don't remember um, uh, what you said to them. They remember how you make them feel and you make everyone feel pretty good because they have fun at your shows. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. I just feel like reaching out with you behind it was that much easier to get them to believe that Skull Candy was doing something really cool. Oh, you definitely. Know? If someone from Skull Candy or a creative agency just emails an artist. Right. They're like, what is this? Like, give me more money for yeah. it. Oh, this sounds like a commercial. Right. And we were really able to frame it as like, look, this is like people involved that really love the music and really love what you bring to it. And we want to, you know, get you some money and here's what we can do. Yeah. 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 And it was fun. We got Rico Nasty involved. And you were great with, um, sounds so corny to say diverse, Uh, making it diverse. But you really, it really was important to you to get money into the hands of black women. Yeah. Getting it first and foremost into the hands of women, particularly black women and women of color. I wanted to have strong LGBTQA representation. I wanted to have strong Latinx and Chicano representation. Like I really wanted to do that. And that's my goal with kind of neat too, is like, I know, and you know that we are guests in this, in this music culture. The industry is obviously run by fucking white dudes and I don't I know I'm eventually and going to be looked at as one of those evil white dudes but like my goal in my heart of hearts is to always put on 
for marginalized communities. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that's what my ultimate goal is with all of this shit. And so, yeah, we really wanted to make sure that it wasn't, we weren't just hiring a bunch of white people and like plain pop acts right. that most companies would want to get at, you know? And you're great at that. I mean, I, I know we don't want to get no, yeah. too much into the uh, anti-racist discussion, but it's like, and to be fair, we don't, I said that we shouldn't get into it just because we are both new to the work and right. we, we're not the right. But I will say yeah. you're less new. Yeah. And that right now it's, I feel weird saying trend because it's positive. Right. But it is a trend to be anti-racist. Totally. But you were on it before. And because I wasn't conscientious of it because, you know, I started booking more of these like emo yeah. rap SoundCloud, you know, little right. peep adjacent shows. Yeah. And one time I booked uh, a show that had like five artists, Wicca Phase and Britain Savage, all these people on it. And then a black rapper hit me up and goes, yo, there's not one person of color on this lineup. Yeah. And my first reaction is white fragility where it's like, yo, I put on so many black art- artists right. before. You know, like right away because it's so hard for me because like you said, we're guests, not not just in this industry, but guests in the hip hop culture. That's what I'm, that's, uh, we're guests in the culture first and foremost. The industry opens its arms wide right. open for white people. It's the culture that we are guests in and that we need to respect. And I know and you- I've, And everything I've always tried to done is to subvert the industry. You know what I mean? And I know you feel the same way about hip hop culture that I do mm. where, you know, I've been a hip hop head since I was 11 years old. Yeah, and I'm 39. Fourth grade, yeah. And so I really identify with hip hop culture I didn't I used to have the argument when I was a teenager and even in my 20s mm. especially like in my teenager early 20s when I was in underground hip hop that like yo I am hip hop culture. Right. This is my culture. And I wanted lot, to join the Zulu Nation. And a lot of that as a youth is fetishization and you really have to conscientiously try to grow out of that and turn the fetishization into appreciation yeah. and I've tried to turn my appreciation into platforming people, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that's really my ultimate goal I with mean, this. What I used to do dude is that uh, like when I'd go, I'd go, I spent a lot of time on rap chat rooms back yeah, in the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. And, um, I was, and I, I made a list of like dope white MCs. Mm-hmm. So if somebody try to like get the, you know, like try to tell me that hip hop culture is black culture, I could fire back. Well, what about elemental? What about evidence? What right. about, like I just, and so to realize that like, so with that particular conversation where the black rapper had called me out for booking this show with all white dudes, um, First thing I want to do is 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 my wife Virgilia wants to fight it and go no no but I did done this and this right. and this but then I had to had to stop and go yo you're right yeah I can't imagine how you feel because mm-hmm. this is your culture because hip hop culture is black culture yeah and that's something that was a hard pill for me to swallow mm-hmm. I'd be like yo this is your culture and and I and I can't imagine how you feel and you're right and right. I'm wrong I'm gonna try to do better. And so ultimately with the skull candy thing, like personally, I go even farther with that. And I don't just say hip hop culture is black culture, like popular Western music in general is black culture. Right. And I've been saying that now on the show frequently for at least the last few, I don't know, years or something. Because yeah, rock and roll is black culture. Fucking, it all comes from black music. Yeah. Country music at its roots is black culture. It comes from blues. Everything. Like everything comes from marginalized black culture culture in america as far as popular western music and so like yeah when we do have the opportunity to work with companies that's really what i try to take to the table is go like look let's not fall into the trappings of only doing this for the numbers and only working with like you know pretty blonde white women that are going to get clicks on youtube because like or cute little white indie boys yeah exactly like it's important to show 
Like if you're going to talk about your company is down with diversity, then at least if you're doing music content, you need to fucking make the music content diverse, period. You know what I mean? And that really resonates particularly for me having been in like the content creation and photo world and video world for so long because like I've been, I'm still always on plenty of sets where the only black person or person of color is the artist that's getting shot. And that's a fucking real up. problem too. Fucked up. And so, you know, I'm trying to hold myself accountable and really think like, I, I know we were trying to go into the anti-racism shit, but now we are, but fuck it. Uh, <laughs> like, I'm really trying to hold myself accountable because like, obviously Kind of Neat is only a two-man operation, but if ever I have a chance to expand or try to scale this, like, I want my entire staff to be black and people of color. And I would love to be able to eventually just give this platform to a black woman to be the host and like bow out gracefully. You know what I'm saying? So it's funny because I'm thinking about something similar with Ham where I'm, when parties do be able to come back on, how can I uplift black, black people that are throwing shows? Yeah. Because if you look at any, any, anybody that's like seen as like a gatekeeper in the local LA rap scene, especially, it's right. all older white dudes. Yeah, of course. It's fucked up. So what can I do to to amplify them? And that's really been the fucking identity crisis that I've been having lately. Obviously, that has been amplified over the last forty days or so with the uprisings taking a place across the country. Is like you don't realize that you've become the old white dude until it's like too late. And I'm realizing like, oh, I'm the old white dude. Like once it finally starts working for you, it's like because you're the old white dude now. And like my whole 20s and 30s, I was always involved in this same culture, but I couldn't have gotten mistaken as the enemy back then. Right. You know what I'm saying? Or as part of the problem. And now... Or at least it wasn't so easily recognizable to me. And now, as like tomorrow's my 39th birthday, it's like. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, tomorrow's my birthday. Well, today, if you're listening, today is my birthday. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like the old white dude that's like, could be looked at as like, I don't know. Like, I, I my worst nightmare is to be looked at as though I'm using black artistry to put myself in a better position. Right. Because my goal and intention with this show is always to elevate black voices. And the reason that we got on this conversation was because while we were working with Skullcandy, that was what I told you. I was like, yo, we need to elevate black voices. We need to elevate black women. We need to get as many, you know, as much diversity into this program as we possibly right. can. And that was our goal. Yeah. I mean, I'll <laughs> say for me, for me, it was hard for me to... I didn't think about I think about white except, exceptionalism where I thought because I grew up in a hip hop because I've been in and out of jail because I'm Jewish I had all these like becauses where I th where I thought that maybe white privilege didn't stand for me as much mm -hmm. but when I take a step back and look at like there's places you and I are able to, you know this, that we're able Obviously. to, uh, certain doors open for us because we're white. Absolutely. And I didn't realize that. You know what a, I think a big issue is for dudes our age, people our age especially, mm -hmm. is that in the 90s, didn't we grow up with this idea of colorblindness? Which is an absolute wrong. I know. It's Colorblindness is terrible. It's yeah. made me ignorant. Yeah. Because I really believed until really diving in that like, 
well, I can't be, you know, it's that I can't be ra- or, or like racism or, or those bad whites. Right. Not me. I'm a good white. No. I don't see color. I've always tried to say like everything that we do as white people is inherently benefited by white supremacy in America, period. Yep. Whether or not you think you are part of the problem, you absolutely are involved in the problem. And that's like, a tough pill to swallow. And if you is. heard that right now and you're white and you're like, eh, I don't know. You're like, fuck these cucks. Only way it worked for me is that Mean White Supremacy Workbook. So I just want to say Mean White Supremacy by Layla Saeed. Mm-hmm. It is changed. It's just like a few pages on white privilege, on white exceptionalism, on tone policing, a few pages, and then journal entries. So you start journaling it down, and it's blowing my fucking mind. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and, I, and I didn't realize how much I'm benefiting off white supremacy. I didn't realize how much I'm upholding white supremacy. Right. I just right. didn't know. I thought there's no way I could be racist. Not me. Right. But if you're white and you're, we're, this is systematic racism exists. So if you're white, you're automatically born with white privilege and you're automatically, like you said, you're benefiting from it right. and you're upholding it. I don't know. It's something that I've really been, um, I've always struggled with it, but I've been way extra more conscientious of it obviously but see you've always faced it for me i was always i had so much white fragility yeah. that i was so busy making excuses of why i'm different than other white i mean i didn't know how to word it when i was in my 20s i would hear other white rappers you hate other white rappers. I, I do i i and i always talk about that i'm like a self-loathing white rapper but i think part of the reason i really had a disdain for white rappers is because i would hear what i didn't know was called back then but what i would call now is dog whistling right where I would hear white rappers talking about themselves being white, you know, and all the really good ones, they didn't do that. You know, like Aesop Rock never talked about how he was white. You know, Slug never talked about how he was white passing. In my eyes, the Grouch never really talked about being white. You know, like these guys that I really liked, they didn't. But then I would hear other rappers who I was around talking about like, yeah, I don't talk about guns. I don't talk about this. I, I wear my pants. Th-. Like, like this blatant, like racist shit about how like they look more like rockers than rappers and shit. And I'm like, yo, you are, I didn't know what the term was back then, but I'm like, you are straight up fucking dog whistling to like try and attract white fans. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I always have had this disdain for people who go like, oh, I don't usually like rap, but I like your music because I was that that to me was them saying, like, oh, I'm actually a racist, but since you're white, I will listen to your music. Right. And so that has always made me very self-loathing as well, you know? And that was really hard. Man, I get people bugging me to put out new music all the time, and it's and it's hard to want to do it because like I especially now as a 39-year-old white dude, like this there is no space for that. Like, I don't need to be doing that. There are so many amazing rappers okay, out okay, there. Okay, okay, stop, stop. Yeah. <laughs> There's no space for you to do that, yeah. but you do have this podcast, and yeah. you are platforming other people of color. Right. There's space for you to still make music, and people are fans of your music. Right, right. And your perspective has grown so fucking much since yeah. seven years ago. Remember, oh, yeah. Whenever uh, E&I came out. yeah. Without that I, was, it was six years ago, but yeah, same, yeah. Share your experience, dude. Yeah. You have so much to share yeah, and yeah. to teach. True, true. I think you should do it. Oh, I'm, I mean, I yeah, don't get me wrong. I know you're I, going I to. I still make songs, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, and I've admitted that. I, I still make songs. I just, you know, like, I never want to be, um, I don't know. Like, I just don't want to be 
as big of a part of the problem as I know I could be. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. Like I know that I'm part of the problem. Every like every white person, like I said, I think is part of the problem. But I want to like try to minimize my problematicness as much as I possibly can. Anyway, that's like a whole other uh, topic, and, and we're supposed to be here talking about you, but I appreciate that. All right. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> to get back on topic, yeah, we kind of went off there. Yeah. So you said really this was supposed to be about what we did as a team together with the Skull Candy thing and and pushing diversity. That led us to other opportunities, I think, because then we got this opportunity with Uproxx that we've been working on. Yeah, which is going to be dope. Yeah, which I've been keeping kind of under wraps. Uproxx hit Adam up to help them do something. They didn't know what. And so Adam told the people at Uproxx, like, yeah, I've been working with my partner Lee and he does kind of neat and we've been kind of consulting on other music content and for sure we can like present you with some shows. And so now you know, you have thrown your hat into the curation ring and you've started curating videos and I'm just kind of directing them basically and doing, you know, I've been working now and directing artists for almost 10 years since Knocksteady. And I didn't know that that was what I was doing as far as like directing. I'm like, oh, I never consider myself a director, but lo and behold, that is what I've been doing. And so you're so good at it. And I didn't realize that. I when appreciate that. When you're directing at Uproxx and you're like in your zone, yeah. you're really good. Thank you. And that's the thing is like, I never would have, if somebody said, are you a director? I'm, no, I'm not a fucking director. I don't know anything about that shit, but I know enough to know how to like talk to people and to pull a performance out of them, you know? And so, yeah, this has been really cool, like, you know, getting to work with you and just see how thoughtful you are about or, um, overthinking to an, to an extent. You're a real overthinker. And I, and that's great, though, because to be able to, like, play chess that way is, is really strong and you're super talented. You know, no one can take that away from you. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And, and, and that's the thing, as you said before this, you had said, you know, making shows isn't where the majority of my money comes. And that's the thing is that... Um, if you just stay true to your integrity, th- things unravel. You never know where you're going to end up right. working, where you're going to end up doing. And I truly believe that because I've made what happened in 2016, what's today, 2020? Yeah. Maybe 2017. Mm-hmm. I, I, the, I had this, you know, up until then I had this Colt 45 uh, ambassadorship that mm-hmm. paid my rent. Mm-hmm. And that went away. And I thought, holy fuck, I need to find a new place to live. I'm not going to be able to afford my loft anymore. But since then, I've made more money than I've ever made in my life. Right. And I think what happened is that I believe this with all my heart that since I've been doing all this self-work and that since I've been sharing the self-work and helping other people, that God, the universe, whatever, I think that gave me a platform to begin with with throwing these shows Gave me a platform, gave me influence so I could put some positivity out there. And I keep getting these gigs and I'm just and, – and part of recovery is not trying to control and just turning my will over and just letting opportunities come and taking opportunities. And it's all stuff that allows me time to still work on myself. And I think that if I stay in this path, I'm going to keep getting opportunities that afford me the luxury of self-care. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and it's, you know, and I could easily spin out because when you don't have like a regular paycheck, it's easy to spin out on, on money. And the more money I make, the more, the more prone I am to like spinning out that it's all going to go away and I need to save it all and hold it. And like, you know, mm-hmm. um, but like money's come and goes and it's, um, it's going to come again. This yeah. won't be the last money I make. Right. And here's another analogy. <laughs> Let's get it. Is that it's like worrying about the future and about future money 
It's like, um, because this especially was helpful for me during quarantine when I thought, like, what am I going to do? Yeah, we're fucked. Is uh, when you're driving through the mountains late at night and, you know, it gets so fucking dark up there that you can't see shit and you have your headlights on. You could only see the few feet ahead ahead of your headlights. That's all you need to see to get to where you're going. You don't need your fucking headlight to shine fucking miles ahead of you. Mm-hmm. A few feet will get you to where you're going. Mm-hmm. And so if I have money right now and I can pay rent right now, that's fine. I don't need to fucking worry about right. next year. There, there's some goofy quote from uh, Yogi Bear that kind of reminds me of that where he says, you know, predictions are hard, especially when it's about the future. <laughs> Which is redundant, obviously, because predicting is about the future. But like, yeah, you can't, you can't, you don't know. You it, just gotta relax and be present. Yeah, I mean, we have a saying in recovery rooms that says, "Fear, F E A R, future events appearing real." Uh, and 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 that's what it is. Is that you? you did Gary Busey come up with that one? <laughs> did he? I don't know. If he's the you know, he philosophized about how things, and and that's like, yeah, there's another saying that's like. Uh, the past is depression. The future is anxiety. Look down. Where's your feet? Mm-hmm. They're on the ground. They're in the present. Stay there. Stay with your feet. Mm-hmm. Stay in the present. Because mm-hmm. uh, future tripping, nothing's good, good, good going to come out of it. And I had a really good experience with this driving from Sedona. That's a seven-hour drive that I just took. Mm-hmm. And I found myself having a hard time being present. A lot of like uh, – because I just it's anxiety. And so I found myself – start future planning or future tripping, mm-hmm. but it's a way of trying to control something when I'm, cause in seven hour drive, I have no choice. I'm going to be in that fucking car for seven hours driving and uh, I just need to be present. So I found myself when I future trip, I wrote this in my notes that like, came to me when I future trip, it's just a way of me trying to control something. So I get out of my present, but, and, and so I would kept looking at the GPS to see if I would like kill. Cause you know, if I go fast enough, I kill a few minutes mm-hmm. and like, I need to stop looking at this fucking, you know, my uh, GPS, stop looking at the clock and be present. And so when I put on an interesting podcast or I listened to a song I like, and I was in the moment, then time went by. Uh, much quicker much quicker yeah. without me having to to future trip mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was an interesting drive you know i think one of the things that you and i can really relate most on is that the entire time that we've known each other we've just been hustling on our own you know and really being independent businessmen and just trying to fucking scrape by and i know that there were times for both of us where we were broke as shit and now it's easy for us to go like oh yeah fucking life is great and blame it i think maybe on uh not even blame it but like a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are like almost 40 year old white men now but you know we took a lot of risks to get here you know what i'm saying and we put on for a lot of people to get here and a lot of people that we did put on for are much much richer than us you know and so it's something that i always have to fight with like i was talking about earlier fight with myself about like is interviewing people and platforming them if it's beneficial to me in some sense, usury in a sense. Like, am I using people to benefit myself or is what I'm doing benefiting them equally or more so? Do you ever have to deal with that when throwing shows? Like, you know, yes, you are paying each artist I mean, whatever you're paying them, but you are making a living off of it as well. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult because, um, well, first of all, I don't want to charge more than ten dollars. Right. I can't pay artists a lot, but I still need to make money, and they still need to get money. Yeah. Um, it's different. I don't know, but 
I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it's the same kind of struggle. I think back to like some of the shows where it's like, I mean, Caliucci's is a great example. We like, I found out about Caliucci's at one of your show, one of your shows, and I'm sure you paid her to perform. Not much, but she did. She wasn't the Caliucci's uh, right. of influence that she was. Now she was an up and coming artist, right? Who was in LA uh, coincidentally or whatever. And then a few months later, I got her on my show, and both of those things did well. And now she is extraordinarily famous. Well, I guess that's the thing is that even like at a party where I'm charging ten bucks and I'm yeah. trying to make money and I can't pay a lot artists too much money. Yeah, I, I guess that. Um, I'm not going to say that Ham or kind of neat was responsible for no, the No, not at all. But, but it's think, part of the journey. I think it's part of the journey. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, with Ham, I think that it's built up enough of a rep where part of the payment, this sounds so douchey maybe, but part of the payment is platforming. Right. Yeah. And and, and I think that's important. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I think about people that made more money than me, and it's like at Ham's super height, height, height. I could have taken ham on tour. I could have done this. I could have. Done, I could have done so many other things to like make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I really regret about that. And I have to let go of regret of missed opportunities and say, "I'm where I'm at. This is where I'm supposed to be." I think one thing that I am proud of, and I and I hope that you are proud of with yourself, is that I think we always stayed true to our like teenage selves of like not being sellouts. You know what I'm saying? Like we really stayed true, or are staying true to like trying to fucking put on for the little guy. It's integrity, and, and it's like we've always listened. We've always listened to the underground artists, and then we started platforming underground artists. And thankfully, some of the underground artists that we've platformed have also coincidentally gone on to be huge artists. That's the same as integrity. And I am only interested in an in underground. Right. Because like 2016 came a period where I started to lose my passion for him on everything because that's when the SoundCloud scene really blew up. Yeah, all the underground dudes were doing like stadium tours. Right, like really quickly. Saying like quote unquote underground. Really quickly. Yeah. Like uh, I booked a little pump and he's huge and this and this. And then I started feeling like – um I had to chase these artists or like, and I was doing the podcast for all deaf digital and they were like, Maddox has just got big. Gotta get Maddox. And I feel like I had to chase and I was like, wait a minute. I need to take a step back. This is not what I got into this for. I didn't go to this to like chase the next clout. I went into this to platform underground artists. Right. And and it got confusing because underground artists that I was platforming previously is now like, what is big? And I felt that same thing around the same time with Kind of Neat where it was like, it was basically like the music industry finally figured out how to make money off streams. And so it was like, they were scooping up everything to give everybody deals. And so by the time you and I were hearing about people online, which is the same way we would normally hear about it. It's like the industry had already swooped in and now they're like getting big already. You know, yeah, they have the industry machine behind, behind them, them before they do their first show. Right. And so that got, yeah, that got really difficult. And I felt those same footsteps that said, you know, I have this year felt a new inspiration, I think. And I think part of that is probably working with you the last couple of years and doing what we've been doing. And it sucks that the inspiration is, is falling right in line with COVID where nobody can travel. Cause I feel like both you and I have been finding out about these new scenes that we like, and right. it's like, we can't access them because they can't travel. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that's what's been important with us working with Skull Candy, us working with Uproxx, is a lot of times it's a battle with corporate companies to say, trust me with this underdog. Right. Trust me the numbers aren't as big as so-and-so. Right. 
but trust me with this. And, I, and, I, and, and the proof in case was like the last episode we did with Skokie was with Hunter Gex and we fought fucking tooth and nail. And it's like be- the best. Because people were like, this is sounds so wild. Like, no, we can't put this on. And then finally they were like, emailed us like, oh, good news. We're just going to let you do Hunter Gex. And it was pretty much because it seemed like everybody had senioritis probably and they just didn't care at that point. But like, that's like one of the only episodes that really just organically crushed. Yeah. And I, and I, and you know, and that's the thing is that I was an underground rap kid mm-hmm. and I love the underground and it's so important to me. So when I got in a position where I could throw shows and platform people, it's like, I just want to keep doing underground shit. Right. Exactly. It's what I'm interested in. Yeah. I'm interested in the underground community. And it's not this, I'm not just, it's not that I'm just interested in underground artists. I'm interested in the community that you feel is an underground fan with each other. Right. And I think that community is really important. Yeah. For sure. And that's why these underground artists do better on content uh, than a bigger artist at the in- industry behind them. Because when an artist comes from the underground, their following is more organic. The following feels a deeper connection mm-hmm. to the artist and to the other fans of it. It's different than someone that blows up right away. When the industry finds somebody that has a clear-cut talent and signs them instantly before they've had any chance to really grow beyond their talent as a human being, that's when the shit doesn't work. And those are different kind of fans. Right, because the thing about, like, legitimate... I look at, you know, we both really love Rico Nasty, and I look at her as this great example of someone who was this underground artist who was putting out songs... But the industry was like a little late to her, right. you know what I mean? And people were late to pick up onto her. And she is such a well-rounded and interesting human because of that, you know, because she built her fan base really organically. Yeah. You know who else is that? Yeah. Little Uzi fucking Vert. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. You know, and uh, and that's much different than, um, I don't want to call out any artist yeah. <laughs> that uh, didn't come through the underground that have an industry push behind them where the numbers look good. Right. On, but there's on- plenty. Yeah, there's plenty where the numbers look good on uh, social media and stuff like that. And so it's – and people looking through the industry lens are like, that's the one. Yeah. But it's like, nah, trust me. Ghost Man's going to do better than blah, blah, blah. Right, exactly. And, you know, there are plenty of one-hit wonders that we've seen come and go that we both have the PR emails that go back – of the industry trying to push them for five years before they became a one-hit wonder. And it's not a surprise that they are a one-hit wonder because when they finally strike that gold, there's no there's no support behind it, really, you know, other yeah. than the radio push. What's life like now? I mean, fuck, if anybody who watches your Instagram would know the answer to this because you post so much. But, like, what is life in the time of COVID like for you? And honestly, um, this is why I had to take the apps off the phone is at first, life in COVID, I treated it like a fucking vacation. Mm-hmm. I, I thought like it was a self-care vacation, mm-hmm. which I know uh, sounds incredibly selfish because uh, people are dying from it. Um, but I was like, I already had such a good like root self-care routine. I was like, oh, it's just more time for me to focus on myself. Mm-hmm. I have money saved. Because you, you know that you're not going to be working the whole time. Right. Yeah. And I have money saved. And at first it was going really good. And even quarantining and not seeing people. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I already li- I like spending time alone. And I had like routines. I was taking a bath. And since I can't go to like watch jazz or classical music, I was watching interesting foreign films, my little dose of culture. Right. And it was all going really good. Right. And then the last month or so, um, I've been getting lonely. And, and that's when I've noticed I've been spending way too much time on my phone. And that since I've been feeling lonely, it's like instead of feeling the discomfort, I – I want to fill the space. I just fill it with the telephone. Mm -hmm. 
and he uh, grabbed his phone for dramatic effect. Grabbed my phone to show yeah. it. Um, so and and I just I was filling the space, and I needed to be present. That's so why I needed to take the apps off my phone and only, and you know, deinstalling, reinstalling, deinstalling, reinstalling. It's a lot. But it's like I need to be extreme, yeah. and because and when it's not my because even when I first took the apps off my phone, I went to the park to read. I found myself if I felt any kind of discomfort, I pick my phone up and I'd go to like where the app normally is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting, and so I automatically just go to it. And now I've took it a step further, where I have my phone on downtime after eight p.m., where it shuts off all your shit. You could, you could, so you click on it and it says, "Oh, you're on downtime. You want to ignore it." But I need that just that extra second of being like, "Yeah, I don't want this." Mm-hmm. And then I found out I can go on Twitter on my web browser on my phone, so I had to block the web browser. Mm-hmm. I have to take all these steps um, because I'm feeling lonely during this last part of last part hopefully of quarantine and Uh, and i need to not grab for something and i need to just sit in feeling lonely because as much as i want everything to i want to be positive and self-care and this and this to really live my life i also need to live in this discomfort Mm -hmm. and right now i'm feeling just i'm feeling the discomfort and the loneliness of quarantine yeah the and it's okay it's really started to get to me lately i've been really fucking depressed lately just like i think it's like the the onset of of the heat because now we're in like the full-on burn of summer in los angeles and like i am still scared to really leave the house for anything you know grocery shopping feels like a war you always oh you just gotta go in the morning there's no lines but not in my neighborhood there's lines all the time still dude trader joe's only lets 15 people in at a time or something like that so it's always a wait to get into trader joe's uh and also the I mean, now the Vaughns by my house, they, they're just, like, letting people in willy-nilly. So I get in there, and it's crowded, and I feel like like they make us do, you know, social distancing in line. So there will be a line from all the way back to – this makes no sense without having been in the Vaughns. But, like, all the way back to the bread section, like, <laughs> wrapped around the store, basically. And it just feels very disconcerting and discomforting. And, and um, a- anyway, yeah, the COVID isolation is – really starting to get to me but i think um you know we started rambling towards the end but i think like the beginning really fantastic just the beginning you <laughs> no like the whole thing no i i mean obviously i just love bullshitting with you you know you're one of my closest friends and i think um your last five years is really about it is really what people talk about when they talk about the, the self-betterment and going from being like a really scummy person to like which, becoming a better person. Which is amazing. Holding yourself accountable. Is there's people that know me through my platform mm-hmm. that don't even know that part of me. They yeah. weren't there right. when I was a scumbag. Right. You know, uh, sometimes if I look at like old posts of mine, I'm like, yeah. oh, I was that fucking person. I do remember even, you know, before you started the real kind of like self-actualization and betterment um, journey that you're on, where I, I would have to check you like, yo, there was no such thing as canceling back then, but you were probably my friend that would have been most likely to be canceled. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I looked at my, my and also it's just like, uh, uh, I like, I saw somebody do a tweet where she said, uh, she's not going to listen to this. She said, uh, f- if she does, I'm sorry. She said, uh, fuck a date. I know all these amazing adventures and this and this, uh, but I'm really, and I have so much travel coming up, but I really don't want to do it alone. 
and and I and I get that because it's like I felt the same way. It's like I know all this cool shit, but I don't want to do it alone because I don't feel worthy enough. And then she said a few tweets before that. She said, uh, "I need a uh, emotional support cuddle buddy." And I, I felt the same way. And I was like, "I'm gonna go. I'm gonna on Twitter write down my handle Adam Goes Ham and cuddle." And it's like I was the same fucking way trying to like I, I don't know what I'm trying to get to, but it was just like I, I just so badly. Uh, needed validation from other people and needed to... I just didn't have any self. Yeah. Sad. No, I feel that. And a lot of times it came out as like uh, douchey because girls, other people that have trauma that are damaged as I'm damaged, that speaks to them, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I read those old tweets or old Facebook posts as such a cry for help or such a lonely person, right. such a, a person with no self-esteem and no self-worth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't think back then. You know, I knew back then, actually, because I would, like, I just watched the movie Somewhere, the um, Sofia Coppola movie. Do you know it? No. It's about an actor who uh, is living in the Chateau Marmont. And uh, he doesn't have to do anything for himself. His agent tells him when he needs to go to like uh, speak for a movie thing. Mm-hmm. They book the plane tickets. They have a driver come get him. His brother throws parties at the hotel for him. He just doesn't. He's just kind of uh, half dazing through life. Yeah. And he's sleeping with a lot of women. But you could tell that he feels just this numbness. Mm-hmm. And he's sleeping with women to try to feel something. But that's not working. And then what the movie happens is that his daughter has to stay with him and he finally gets a real connection a real relationship then she leaves and there's a scene where he calls a woman to come over and she's like no you know and he starts crying he's like just come be with me and i felt that because when i was just sleeping with people i didn't it didn't cure my loneliness i felt more fucking lonely than ever and watching that movie 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 made me realize that when you're just sleeping with people without an emotional connection it's a different kind of look because now I feel lonely during COVID. It's not like that loneliness I used to feel because that kind of loneliness is soul crushing. Mm-hmm. The kind of loneliness where, because I think that there's a physical, we all want to connect, our souls want to connect with other souls. And I think that when you're connecting physically, but the emotional connection isn't there, you're doing something fucked up to yourself physiology. Ph- physiologically yeah that's like really fucks you up Mm. and so the loneliness i felt when i was just sleeping with people without having any emotional connection is so fucking sad and it's so soul crushing it's funny because i have a song on a record 10 years ago called lonely where i like jokingly say like i just go through a list of like booty calls that i had kind of rapping about them and what i thought was a funny way i now look back on it 10 years later as a very fucking douchey song that I like really despise that it's out there. Sorry if that's ruining it to, to anybody who listens. That said, it's like really like I'm like inviting people over and, it, and the chorus goes, cause I've been lonely. And it's like supposed to be ha ha. And, and now I look at it and it was like really Sad. this cry for help. Yeah. It's like really it's. And I, even at the time I was like, oh, I'm writing this like, like I'm trying to take a humorous approach at how miserable how doing this, this makes me feel, you know, it's desperation. Right. But because it sounds pretty happy and it's like funny and it, and it really was yes, all about validation. And it's all about impressing people. Like you said, with your exploits, like growth makes you look back on your old self and think what a fucking piece of shit you were, you know, that's something that, that yeah. if, and if it doesn't, 
You still have some growing. Then you're not growing. You still have some growing. You're not growing. Anyway, that was great. And eventually, we'll just start a podcast together about something we We got to. Yeah, we got to. That that, that's like sober guys having a cocaine conversation. (laughs) Like, bro, come on, let's fucking let's start let's start a podcast. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, tell people where they can find you to watch your uh, uh, self betterment and self care videos. Adam goes ham, but the videos aren't as long nowadays because I'm trying to. uh, cut down really on be that. present but I'm still uh, I'm purposely I'm intentionally posting positive stuff and when I read or hear a quote or something or I get it inside I write it down so I could uh, yeah, share it, it. Yeah. My, I put my mom onto your shit she thinks it's so funny she's like I love when Adam says pro tip I don't, and I'm like okay Anyway, that's it. It's Adam Goes Ham. Have your mom follow me. At Adam Goes Ham. Have your mom follow him. She will think it's hilarious. That said, thank you, Adam. One of my good buddies. It was a pleasure. My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition. You can follow me at It's Intuition. You can follow my man behind the boards making the shit sound buttery, Benjamin Shim, at Benjamin Shim. You can follow us as a unit. Kind of neat. YouTube.com slash kind of neat where you can go catch up on all the videos you've been missing. And I think that's it. Kind you of got some great videos this season that people do need to watch. Yeah. You know, a lot has changed on YouTube in the last two years while we were on hiatus. And so, like, even though we were close to 400,000 subscribers on there, they don't send notifications like they used to. And so I think people are still kind of waking up to the fact that the videos are back. And so the numbers are really down on YouTube. And I'm hoping that they start to, you know, catch back up. And I've got, well, to, I've got to adjust a little bit. I think it will because how you're booking the artist. Because you're booking – what you really put me on to is this new um, abstract hip-hop that's happening. I mean, yes, yeah, the this shit new, that we grew you know, up loving. Maxo and – I love Maxo, Ma- yeah. uh, 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 Maxo, Overcast, Mavi. P- Pink Sifu, Mavi, uh, Mavi Madani. They're all, uh, and, all uh, and and they're great. Navy blue. These are all the people that I listen to in my free time. And since you're listening to this, and and if you haven't, and if you're a fan of Ham, and you listen to this, and you just heard those names, and you're unfamiliar, listen to them because I swear to God, when Ham comes back, that's the direction I'm going to go into. Yeah, because those are re- th- those are really the voices now that we would have been listening to when we were in our teens. You yeah, know? I'm bring, it, we're bringing yeah. it back. The SoundCloud emo mosh pit shit. It already it like uh, I said. It, let's not talk shit. Yeah, I'm not. No, it's yeah, great, yeah. but yeah. it already has. It's it's not underground anymore. Right. And I'm like I said, I'm interested in the next underground thing. Right. And if and and I promise that even if you're not hip to these artists, you're gonna love it because you love underground. Right. That's it. Yeah. And it's beautiful abstract poetry. You know, like that's really what it is. Anyway, okay. Now we're really out of here. That was Adam. I'm Lee. That's kind of neat. Thank you guys. And also, I'm joking. <laughs>